So this afternoon we have a series of questions, and again, this, these questions actually are something that we can learn from, isn't it? So uh, we can listen to the question, we can leave the question, and also we can see to which extent it is speaking to us. So anyway, we will go like this, and uh, I can also learn from the questions. So we are just in the process of sharing, kind of, and it's a, uh, you know, a global inquiry. So one question here, we'll start, is when practicing metta for a being with, with worthy, quite easy, sorry, with worthy, quite easy to connect to it, I noticed the feeling was not strong. When I acknowledged that this being is currently suffering, there was a strong arising of karuna, compassion. This might suggest that the mind of metta will naturally turn to compassion when it encounters suffering. However, I don't know of teachings about this in the sutta. So, uh, in the suttas, if we take the metta sutta, huh, they speak only about metta, how, you know, these monks, it was a teaching for monks, how these people add to develop metta for beings. So, in this case, metta was referring to all the states of the Brahma Vihara, that means compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, and also equanimity. So, in a way, when we say metta, then it can also include all the Brahma Vihara. Then, if we take that same, if we take that same sutta, you know, the metta sutta, then uh, what is uh, nice is that uh, it's a monk, the Buddha who is talking to monks, very ascetics, and then he tells them that uh, they should develop and practice the meditation on loving-kindness, and he gives, as a simile, the mother. Of course, the parents, but here, it's the mother. So, it is said there that as the mother will care for her only son, so, this type of loving-kindness, this type of caring, should be given to all beings. So, I am not a mother, I'm not even a father, and so for those of you who have the experience of being a parent, then, do you tell yourself, on Monday, I practice metta, Tuesday, I practice karuna, Wednesday, I practice mudita, and uh, let's say uh, Friday, Upeka, and then in the weekend, I take a break. <laughs> so it has to be adjusted, isn't it? So we are here, we are learning kind of, a, we are learning a, a system, huh? and then just a techniques, just to uh, show us that actually uh, we can train our perception. We can train also the way we perceive, the way we encounter reality, just by the way that we see it. And the same thing with other beings. So that type of uh, 
perception need to be adjusted with the situation. So if we are looking at the same person, then sometimes the person will be happy. So we can have mudita, sometimes the person will be suffering, we can have compassion, sometimes just the person will just be doing her own life and then we, j we can just have a general feeling of loving kindness. So uh, in these case, it's we are speaking about adjustment. Huh? So, so, so that's it. So it just uh, we just need to adjust to ac according to the according to the situation. So here it's again related to perception and uh, at what stage on the path or with what state of mind can we trust our perception? For example, even when the hindrances are at bay or overcome, everything appears to be impermanent, yet there can still be a subtle sense of, of a knower. At what, what stage of the path can we trust our state of mind? Can we trust our perception? So, perceptions, we need first of all to define what is a perception. So, a perception, what do we speak about perception? Perception is actually the, uh, the activity of the mind that marks something. So, we see something and then we mark it with the label. Huh? And then we remember the mark that we have uh, used to identify something. I see a table, I mark, this is a table. I see a person, I say, this is Suzanne. I see, uh, whatever I see, I put a judgment, and then I, I put a mark, and then I remember the mark. So that means that the perception also is quite relative. The perception also is very subjective. So uh, in this sense, if we know that perception is subjective, then we should never trust it. It's relative. Because it's uh, the interpretation that we are making on reality, and, uh, and then that interpretation, we, we, we project it again on the reality. But knowing that uh, the perception is always, has al always the possibility to change, then uh, we can uh, question the validity of that interpretation, and then to say, we can ask ourselves: Is it, is it still the same thing? So, is our perception a source of prejudice? This is a question. So, the label that I will put on a person: Am I going to keep that same label? And then, when I meet the person again, will I use the same label and then project it on the person, or? Will I be uh, flexible enough to tell myself, well, this is how I perceive that person. Her name is such and such. But is it the same person as I saw yesterday or as I met this morning? So in this way, we can, we can see that there is a kind of relativity to the perception that we are having. So the question also... Well, also, you know, like, like everything appears to be impermanent, yet there can still be a subtle sense of no, of an or. Well, so what? 
So if there is an or, the knower, like it's us, you know, so the knower uh, himself is just, a, is just a, a concept, it's just a perception again. So if we know that the, what we identify as the knower is something uh, impermanent, then in the, same, in the same way, we don't need to take it so seriously. So the question is again, on the other more mundane side, of everyday life, one must use one's discernment to make decisions, judgments. Even when one can be sure perception is accurate. Right. For example, many times I have gone against my better instinct. Given someone the benefit of the doubt, knowing I cannot fully trust my perception, only to be hurt and disappointed when the person's conduct is less than virtuous. So the judgment has been, uh, the, the, the decision has been made against the better, the better instinct. So what we call an, in, an instinct here could be just the intuitive. So you see somebody with whom you might have had difficulty before, and, uh, uh, and then you see that the person is in the same mood. So your instinct tells you, well, the person is in the same mood. That means a, a mood of anger or you know, a mood that, uh, that is not so trustworthy. So uh, that intuition is knowledge. So if the perception is based on your knowledge, so then you can trust the knowledge that informs you that, okay, now this is how I perceive the person now. So it's not a prejudice, it's a direct knowing of what is happening in front of you. And uh, perceptions also need to be used properly. That means a wrong perception is that uh, if you see, if you look at a rope and then you see a snake, this is a wrong perception, isn't it? But if you look at a snake and then you see a snake, then it's good. If you look at the snake and you see a rope, then you are in trouble. <laughs> so we can see everybody as nice people oh, and trust them, but we have to be also uh, uh, sharp enough to make a distinction between characters. Otherwise, if we are not able to distinguish between a fool and a wise person, by way of the way that they behave, then we will just get exploited. We will just get cheated. So we have to be careful about that. So this is one thing. And I'd like to continue again with perception, because it's very wonderful how perception actually makes the world we are living in, and then the perception we have about the world is just conditioning our happiness and our suffering. And also, uh, to understand the dynamic of perception is really fantastic. So, our goal in relation to perception is first to understand perception. So, we understand how perception is arising. We understand also for which purpose 
perception is there for us as a human being, why do we develop, why has the mind developed that capacity to make differences and then also to develop a certain type of perceptions? Why is that? So we understand the functions and the ways that the perception is arising. Then when we see that, somehow we have the possibility, because we have seen that the perceptions we are giving on the world is subjective, relative, we have the possibility to control our perception to some extent. And we are going to control our perceptions in the ways that where the way we will perceive things are not going to affect us to the extent that we are getting on balance, to the extent also that we will lose our happiness, to the extent that we will just create suffering for ourselves. So it is important to know that perception can be controlled and also perceptions can be trained. And this is what we are doing in the meditation. We are, on, we are seeing that these perceptions are just kind of false, but sometimes they are, they, they, they are right, but they are subjective, they are relative. But we see also that the way we look at things uh, influence our reaction, influence also our attitude. And then the third aspect of perception is that once we have seen that actually all these perceptions are... Uh, a creation, then we can learn how to go beyond them. But first, it's very useful to know how perception is arising and then for which purpose uh, they are there. So we have seen like the sutta that was uh, used the other day uh, with uh, the Onibal Sutta. We have seen that, uh, that the way we are perceiving then it is influencing our feelings, and also it is influencing our thoughts, and then it is influencing also the, the stories that we are making about the experience. And these stories can bring us conflict. These stories also bring wars, and these stories also in ourselves can also cause trouble for uh, for us. Huh? So this is the, 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 the Honeyball Sutta. It's all about that. Huh? The perceptions actually are kind of tricky. Also that uh, text also tells us that the perceptions are very subjective. Huh? It is very personal. There is also another sutta in the Diganikaya that speaks Pottapada, you know, so uh, it's uh, ascetics or, you know, kind of uh, yogis, and then they, 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 they talk with the Buddha, maybe it was monks, I, I forgot, but uh, the, the, the question was, uh, uh, are the perceptions that we are having in regard everything, is it dependent on causes and conditions, or it is just arising like that? So the Buddha says that, no, we have to acknowledge that the perceptions we are having are conditioned. And not only that, but that the, con the perceptions we are having can also be trained. So we can train our perception with a meditation. So the training of perception 
is something that we need to learn and also it's something that we need to develop in order to go eventually beyond uh, perception because uh, perception is just still perception. If for those who like texts, you know, there is another one in the Majumanikaya and uh, it's called the simile of the cloth. So I will not go into the details and you can read it if you're interested, but uh, uh, the development is that uh, somebody is practicing meditation and then starts to be very happy because the, the, the meditation itself brings a lot of uh, uh, cleaning. The mind is free from defilements and uh, the person realizes, oh, now I am free from covetousness. Now I start to be a little bit more free about my anger and my jealousy and you know, there's a kind of purification that happens in the meditation. So from there, then the person in the text starts to be very happy about the teaching that he has learned from the Buddha and he reflects about that and he's still very happy. That happiness also brings a lot of uh, faith, a lot of confidence. And then from there, then he practices the Brahma Vuyara because the person is so full. So the metta there is arising naturally towards all beings. So there, here, there also you have the, uh, a description of the practice of the Brahma Vihara that is uh, seen in other texts. But uh, the, the mind is just full of love, uh, full of uh, compassion, and then all of these things uh, towards the whole world. Mm? And uh, then at the end of that quotation, the end of that uh, practice, then it says that there is this, this is the, 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 the uh, speak about the, it's from the, the English translation from the text. So there is this, there is the inferior, there is the superior, and, the, and also there is beyond an escape from the whole field of perception. So it's speaking about our perception actually, our condition, and then uh, everything that is conditioned actually is a source of unsatisfaction because it always depends on causes for to exist. So even the practice of metta, the Brahmavihara, is conditioned by perception, and then beyond that, then there is something else that is not dependent anymore on the perceptions we are making out of the experience. Another question related to the same theme is that uh, what is meant by the term liberation through the beautiful? So it's uh, very simple in the sense that uh, the mind gets liberated through the beautiful because what is being perceived is perceived as very beautiful. So if somebody is practicing the Brahma Vihara, Mm? So you are practicing loving kindness or caring or benevolence or whatever name you put on it. And uh, the way that the perception is conditioned in these states is that uh, we come to see all beings as very beautiful. So it's a conditioning of the perception that whoever we are looking at, there is an aspect of beauty there. And then because of that, 
we don't get angry. So even with the most uh, difficult person, we will be able to see a beautiful quality. If the person is not, is not having a nice speech, we can look at the action that the person is doing and say, oh, he is not speaking very nicely, but the way he behaves is very beautiful. Sometimes the way the persons, one person in particular, with whom we might have difficulty, sometimes the person may not behave very nicely, but the speech that uh, he is having is very nice. And sometimes also uh, you have other qualities that are not uh, obvious, but if we are looking carefully, then these qualities are seen. So instead of seeing the faults, you just see the beautiful. So in this sense, it's the liberation to the beautiful because the objects are seen beautifully. But also it is called beautiful because the mind itself, who is in that in these states is also very beautiful because there is no hatred, there is no greed, and also there is a, uh, quite a good degree of, uh, of uh, clarity, a, quite a, a good degree of knowledge. So this is the beautiful qualities of the mind. So the mind is beautiful and also everything that is being perceived is uh, beautiful. In order to develop Kanika Samadhi, this is momentary concentration, while doing daily activities, if we know the basic purpose of our activity, shall we stay focused on the body, rupa, passa, contact, or should we also be aware of the arising of intention, nama, or just occasional noting of intention to keep on track. So here the question is about the Kanika Samadhi. Also Kanika Samadhi is what we what is described as momentary concentration and this is quite a high degree of attention. It's quite a high degree of mindfulness where the hindrances are not so much powerful. Uh, and also that type of uh, samadhi, kanika samadhi, is the samadhi, the, the, the quality of the mind that uh, we are using for insight meditation. Like this is the level where it is processing uh, things by way of insight. And uh, this kanika samadhi also has the same strength as other types of uh, samadhi. That means it has the same power as apana, that means neighborhood concentration, or full tajana also. But since the objects that is being observed in vipassana are always changing, they are seen as a process, because of that, then it will not go into full absorption. Whereas if you develop the mind using uh, concepts, or then because the, the, the concepts are kind of permanent, then the mind can just absorb uh, in that. Actually, the samadhi we are talking about, well, the samadhi, is actually the intensification of the observation on what we are looking. But 
what we are looking in Kanika Samadhi is a process different than an object. So here, like I like to make the difference, and also if you have looked at the charts, then you see that at some point there is a, you know, there is a parallel of how the things are perceived. So on the left of the paper, you know, over there, you have what is called object meditation, uh, and then higher on the on the chart, uh, we have the the name, the term, process meditation. So here you can look at it. I don't. I didn't bring it now. Uh, here, what we are speaking when we say object meditation is technically also defined in the commentaries, and it is called uh, aramana upanijana. So it's a type of jhana that is depending, that is arising in relation to an object, uh, in relation actually to a, a concept. Whereas the other type of uh, samadhi, based on, on seeing a process, it is called in Pali, lakana upanijana. So lakana upanijana, that means the jhana that is arising, seeing the characteristics of the object. So just to make sense to the question, again I will repeat it. In order to develop Kanika Samadhi while doing daily activities, if we know the basic purpose of our activity, should we stay focused on the body? Or should we also be aware of the arising of intention? So first, when we are doing something, we should know the purpose of it. Uh, and this, this is kind of conventional. So if you are washing the dishes, you have to know the purpose of your actions. If you are uh, doing anything, then you should know why you are doing these things. So uh, this is one aspect of uh, understanding the purpose of what uh, we are doing. Also, should we also be aware of the arising of intention, nama? So here, again, when we are doing things, it is important, you know, that we know why, we know what we are doing, but also why we are doing things. That, of course, knowing why in the sense of a purpose, but also knowing the quality that we are doing it. That means the quality of the intention we have. So it is very important somehow that when we are doing something, we have to see the quality of the mind. And, and here, intention will refer to, you know, the, in the April Noble Path, the Sama Sankappa. That means a mind that is free from uh, sense desire, a mind also that is free of ill will, and also a mind that is, that is free of cruelty. So these types of uh, uh, mental qualities 
uh, you have to see why you are doing the things. No? So it is very important. But still, this is not yet kanika samadhi. Huh? So this is just the basic way of functioning in the world. You have to know why you are doing th things, what you are doing, and also the quality uh, by which you are doing it. But when you, when we intent intensify, when we intensify the observation of what we are doing, we come to perceive the actions as a process. So in this way, the mode of attention or the mode of mindfulness will turn the perception in the way of insight. And then we just see the body just as a body, and the body also just as physical element. And also we see the mind plus its various dynamics just as a process. And the various dynamics of the mind, like we don't need to know everything that is happening in the mind, but we have to see, for example, the, maybe the intention, maybe because uh, we can give importance sometimes to one aspect of the mental content, whereas other aspects could be neglected. Uh, we can be very detailed, very precise, but also we can also be very general. So, Nama, so the idea is that when we come to the Vipassana, what we see as a process is just mind and body. So body is here, rupa, just the fundaments, and then mind will be the aspect of perception. So what is the perceptions we are having when we are doing things, but on a very subtle level? Also, nama will refer to the sensations. What are the sensations we are experiencing when we are doing something? Also, nama refers to uh, the intention, so the intention itself is sankara, the volition, the, 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 the reason why we are doing it, so the, the, the motivation. Huh? And also, uh, nama, the mind, refers to uh, everything that is related to contact. That means from, from, from the experience itself, contact speaks about, about uh, the, the, the relationship with mind and body. Also, when we are doing something, we can just be aware of the mind. Uh, so we are aware of just knowing. So there is knowing. You just look and then there is just knowing that you see something. You hear, there is just knowing. So there is bare consciousness. So as long as we are able to see the difference with the physical process and the mental process, then we are on the beginning of understanding, the beginning of, uh, uh, of insight meditation. And then with that observation, when again, we intensify a little bit and then uh, uh, look a little bit more uh, clearly, then uh, all of these uh, processes just are, are, are just perceived as a, a flux, it's just perceived as, as energy constantly arising and passing away. So this is at the stage of the uh, uh, Vipassana. We have to. We have actually to to adapt, you know, to what we need. Huh? And then uh, sometimes we can. We are in a mood, uh, and sometimes uh, uh, the occasion 
is uh, like here. It's appropriate to, to, to function in a way of, of, uh, of insight, but also it's also important to know, uh, you know, the relative, the, 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 the what we are doing on a conventional level. We always need to keep on track. Huh? So always what we are doing, we have to keep on track. And uh, whichever aspects of reality in, re in regard to the five aggregates, we are observing, we have to be clear about it. But eventually, we are just looking at the five aggregates themselves. So another question is, what is the evidence that paths, paths, huh? that paths beyond stream entry require jhana. Will the bare insight workers' cultivation of supramundane jhana work for the purpose? So, what is the evidence that paths, the paths beyond the stream entry require jhana? Actually, I have no evidence. So. Again, you know, if we define the jhanas as a jhana on the process, huh? so the fact of having our mind intensified, uh, having the uh, intensified observation on phenomena, then the mind can go into the jhana, the lakana upanijana, right? So, so it is an, uh, uh, a jhana, a type of jhana, a type of samadhi that is just seeing processes, just seeing characteristics. So by itself, this is a jhana. And uh, uh, as it is the same strength of the other types of jhana, we can say that this type of jhana will be sufficient to get uh, other paths. Huh? So although some people will not necessarily develop the samatha, uh, very strong uh, jhana, then if they're uh, insight is, 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 is powerful enough, then this is reaching the level of, uh, this is reaching the level of jhana. And uh, the story is like uh, the, the point, uh, you know, that uh, uh, show us that there is no evidence unless there are contradiction in the text, is that if we look at the stories, so for example, there is a story, I don't know if I told the story, I referred to it before, but there is the story of, uh, of a monk, you know, an old monk, and then he was, a, uh, he was very famous because he had a lot of knowledge, he was a very good uh, teacher, and also his behavior, he, his, he was very pure. Huh? So he was on his, on his dead bed, dead bed, and uh, some people, you know, the, his followers came to see him, and they were expecting that uh, they wanted to pay uh, respects to the Harat, so they were thinking that he was an Harat. So when his uh, pupils told him, oh, oh the, sir, the, the, your pupils are coming to pay respect to you, the lay people, and uh, they think that you are an Harat. And he says uh, that actually he has not attained any supramundane uh, states and that he has actually never practiced even insight meditation. Uh, but he tells them, oh, well, wait a minute, you know, just help me to get on my bed. Uh, and then, you know, so they, they, they get him straight on his bed. And then he sits on his bed. Uh, and then in a few minutes, you know, just go like this. I, I not, don't, don't take me as an example. No? So, 
<laughs> and then after a few minutes, he, he snaps his fingers. He says, okay, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so they say, they, they, they tell him, oh, how have you done that? And then he says, well, it was not uh, that difficult. Was wha- what was more difficult is that throughout my life, I cultivated uh, mindfulness and clear comprehension. And also throughout his life, because of that uh, consistency, because of that uh, 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 kind of dedication that he did to a life of purity and also to a life of knowledge, that when it came, the time for him to become an heart, it was not very difficult. So we can remind ourselves that actually the quality we give to our life will influence a lot whatever we call attainment, especially when it's the time of dying. Huh? So, uh, so here, anyway, it's, it's, just a, it's just an obvious case that the person has not, had not even, even the jhanas. You know, it's quite questionable. So in a few minutes, uh, I doubt that he will have uh, the time to practice all these uh, types of samadhi. Another question, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it says that uh, you can be enlightened at the moment of death if you are not afraid of the visions you see. Is there any similar teaching in the Theravada tradition? Death and rebirth in other realms. So, uh, yes, we have uh, the same uh, type of uh, interpretation and uh, we have uh, different stories also that uh, people like monks or like, um, uh, and then they are caught, you know, for example, they are caught in, a, in, in the forest and the forest is in fire and then the person is just uh, wants to observe uh, his uh, behavior, his sila so uh, strongly that he does not, uh, he does not uh, destroy, you know, even the plants. And the, but actually, because of that, he remains there, huh? And then he is not afraid, so uh, so he attains uh, arachit just at the moment of death. So we have other types of uh, all kinds of uh, funny stories about how people, you know, attain uh, very high uh, levels just at the moment of dying, because the moment of dying actually is so painful, it's so traumatic sometimes that uh, if you are ready to face that. Then, then you get uh, you get the insight immediately, and then you get also the result of it. So you should not wait until you die to practice. But still, you know, if you are clear enough when you die, then you can learn something in a few minutes. And also, uh, here they speak about the visions. So the visions actually that we have is just uh, our perceptions. Right? This is very much conditioned with our perception. So death and rebirth in other realms, of course, like uh, uh, whether it is the Tibetan uh, interpretation or other types of uh, uh, Buddhist interpretation, the cosmology of these days, the cosmologies of uh, this culture is the same. So in Buddhism, there, is, uh, there are other realms, and then also when we pass away, not only the realms are inside our mind, but also the realms exist outside in the universe. So it's not a, a, a universe, but it's a multiverse with many dimensions and also many uh, spheres and realms of existence.
So now, again, a story about the nature. So, please tell about the land-seeking crow. So it's an image that I find meaningful, but cannot quite put words uh, to it. So, the land-seeking crow, it's, uh, you know, it's the story that they give in the Viswinimaga, and uh, it's, you know, the, 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 all the... Uh, all salesmen, they had the boats, uh, and then they had a crow on the on the top of the of, of one of the mat. Uh, they had a crow. So when they were lost in sea, then to know where the where they could land, then they will uh, free the crow, uh, and then the crow will fly uh, very high, uh, and then or, or will go in different directions because of the the. the, the Height, it could see very far, and then if it was to see a land, then the crow will just fly there, right? But if it was not to see anything, then the crow will come back to the boat or will just land back on the boat. So the, the simile here is, in, is in, in, in relation to the practice of vipassana and especially one of the last... Uh, uh, vipassana knowledge and sankara upekka that means uh, somebody is just watching these five aggregates inside and outside and uh, uh, then there is no place actually of safety the person is just saying anicca dukkha anatta you know all the time and there is uh, no place also to land so the mind is not that interested to does not find security in the five aggregates and then the mind is just looking for another place where it could settle. So it says that uh, if the mind does not find Nibbana, then again it comes back to the formation. So as long as the person is not mature enough or has not got uh, enough momentum, then the, the mind will not go to Nibbana. So as long as the mind does not you know, seen in Bana, then it will not be able to go, and then it will come back to, uh, to the boat of the five aggregates. Why are monks, the teachers and yogis in the Theravada tradition, always avoid to talk about or tell anyone if they have attained any stage of enlightenment or not? And are there rules or precepts that forbids it? Or what is the reason otherwise? If I get enlightened, should I not tell anyone? So why the teachers and yogi in the Theravada tradition uh, always avoid to talk about it is that... Uh, is that they may have attained or they may not have attained. So it's not sure. So if you talk about it, what's the point? And here, we, uh, you know, there is, a, there is a story of a, a monk in Burma, Sunun Sayado, and uh, sometimes people will come to him and then he will, he, he, they will tell him that they are enlightened. So the only response that the, the, the monk will say is, may it be so. So it's not an approval. And also what do we define as enlightenment is also important. And if we look also at the, 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 the way that uh, 
Lady Sayado, another Burmese monk, evaluate the, 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 the issue is that uh, he was saying that sometimes people are enlightened or they get you know, at least the sotapanna, but they don't know it. And sometimes people think that they have attained it, but they have not. So the way to check it is that uh, you, you, have to, you have to wait at least for five years. You have to wait this amount of time and then see in your mind, see also in your behavior if uh, it has changed, if the major defilements are not or are there or, or, or not there anymore. Of course, uh, if we talk about from the, you know, from the monastics, then we have rules huh, that uh, forbids to, uh, to talk about that. And the reason is that uh, just to avoid conceit and also the possible false statements. And uh, if you become enlightened, uh, should you tell anyone? So first you could ask yourself why you, could, why you will need to tell it, to tell about that. Uh, and uh, definitely you can tell anyone, but uh, be sure that most people will look at you a little bit suspiciously. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so I suggest that if you feel enlightened, then it's very good, but... Uh, let people see the proof by your behavior huh? and then by the way that uh, you keep your mind. And I think this would be more convincing and more effective. <laughs> so the other question is, is uh, in regard to Shaila's uh, yesterday's morning, uh, Reflection, she's not here to reply, but it's, uh, it just speaks about the instruction she suggested. And uh, she made a distinction between uh, practices of discernment, mind and body, mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of the body, and vipassana practices, and that people might be engaging with, with, uh, with ear or on intent. And people en engaging with uh, with here, engaging with here on or in or. The question was just: What's the difference? What why um, Shaila made a distinction between nama rupa practices and vipassana practices? Okay. So, okay. Yeah. 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 So at the beginning of the vipassana, you know, practices, we have to distinguish what is the physical phenomena and then the mental phenomena. It's kind of very interesting for us to see that uh, that there is a difference between the body and then the mind. It's quite interesting. So the the the, the distinction we are making with body and mind processes is the beginning stage of the vipassana, but it's not yet vipassana. It is just the basic uh, uh, putting, the, 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 the fact, you know, so the what. So we are looking at body process and then also mental processes. So to see the distinction is something very important. And then later on, once we have seen the specific causes, 
that relates to physical phenomena and also mental phenomena, then we see the whole thing as a process. And then this is the real vipassana. This is a more mature type of vipassana where everything is just changing. So here, this is uh, maybe a long question, or but since I have uh, still, we we have about uh, maybe ten minutes, I will finish with this one. Please say more about the Park Toya Sayado. I think we have started practicing some of his teachings, and uh, I believe he has played an important role in your training. I am developing sadda, confidence in his teachings, but feel that a lay yogi like us could hardly follow through his approach. Please shed some lights so we can all benefit from this Dhamma. So I could say that, uh, I think I mentioned the other day, but anyway, we could say that uh, the Park Sado uh, is uh, speaking about the detailed uh, practice of Vipassana. Huh? So uh, we have a brief practice of Vipassana, and also we have a detailed practice of Vipassana. So the detailed practice is very demanding, and also the detailed practice requires a lot of samadhi. So for that reason, the samadhi is developed to a very great extent, huh? and also when uh, the yogis switch to the Vipassana, then the amount of analysis is done to a great, very great extent. So it's not uh, possible or it's, not, uh, it's difficult for lay people to give such an amount of time because it may require many months, if not a few years, and uh, uh, it requires a lot of uh, things. But it is possible. Actually, I was able to learn a lot. And, and uh, you have also you know, other lay people who are uh, assimilating all these uh, type of uh, teachings. Uh, so it's possible, but, uh, but we should not make it a must. Uh, and also because we see in the tradition the possibility to use a brief method or a detailed method just means that we are all different. That means also some people will be so analytical, some people will like so much of precisions that they will go for a very, very detailed method uh, and also they will be willing and also also skilled in developing the, these things. And then some, peop some people will not have necessarily all these abilities. And then just with a bare, simple method, these people will be able to get enlightened or to get awakened. So it, really, it depends on us. Uh, so at some point in our practice, if we see that we get stuck somewhere, uh, that we have stopped, understanding, we feel that we have stopped progressing, then we can ask ourselves questions. And definitely the answer to the questions will be that the inquiry or the practice that we have made are not enough. Huh? So then we can uh, try to find out, is there a way where I can get a bit more precise? Are there methods that give me a bit more tools by which I will deepen my understanding. So in this way, we have, to, we have to see, and definitely at the beginning, we need to have a very broad type of taste, a very broad 
idea or experience of the whole thing. So when we know what we are dealing with, that means we try to understand this process of life that we see in ourselves, in other people. So uh, to have a whole picture of it is very important. And then the more we practice, the more we see what we incline to, the more we see also what we lack, the more also we see that what we could develop. So later on we can specialize ourselves a bit more. Like uh, some of you, you know, come here just to get more precise about samadhi because you know that uh, the more samadhi you will have will give you more precision in your analysis, more precision also in your understanding. This is fine. Some of you also just come here to deepen the insight that uh, already you have and then you want to mature it. So this is also fine. So in this way, it depends on us. It depends on our interest, our capacities, and also on the time that we can give to, uh, uh, to the practice itself. And this is why I think, it, I think it's, very, uh, it's very good to know that uh, uh, there are many approaches Oh, and then also, we don't need to fix ourselves to say there is only this one method. And if I'm not doing, if I am not able to do, to do this method, I am a failure. No, we have all kinds of, uh, uh, you know, approaches and also pra practices that will eventually speak to us. That will also eventually cause uh, that awakening mind, that light, and that, that, that joy in the practice. So we should not get discouraged and think only, only the highest uh, uh, type of uh, technique is the best. Uh, we all have a, a technique that will be uh, suitable to us. So we have to, we just have to continue in this way. I think we will end up here. Thank you very much.